0: of those, yeah, just one of those. Anyone should hopefully have what I'm looking for. Thank you very much. Yeah, it does. Okay, So tonight, uh, I want to start with uh, two options on the screen. And they're A and B. And and we're just going to pick which one uh, is, is correct, Okay, So just two statements. Which one of these do you think is the correct way to phrase this statement? Option A, the canon is an authoritative collection of books. Or B, the canon is a collection of authoritative books. B. A references the fact that the man-made list is authoritative, whereas B references the fact that the books contained were just acknowledged. And isn't that exactly how it works? And so this is a statement we made last week just in summary, that canonicity is not simply something that happens to a book by a community, like you make it part of the canon uh, that was its exclusive and functional, uh, definition, if you remember that, but a book is canonical by its very nature and existence. That is its ontological definition. So there's our three definitions of canon. If you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, that probably sounded very confusing. Um, but you should go back and and uh, watch that. That's on YouTube. We talked about those three definitions last week. Uh, summarize it another way here: that books do not become authoritative, that is part of the canon, because the church accepts them. Because that would be putting power in the people to make something authoritative. But we don't have that power, do we? No one has that power to make a book authoritative, uh, at least divinely authoritative, right? Because the church accepts them. The church did not create the canon. They recognized it and accepted it. And, and that's how the process of canonicity works. Um, how did this happen? How did it come to be that we have 27 books in our New Testament? And here are the three steps that we talked about last week. Step one is that the books are composed and circulated. The second step that happens is that the books are read and recognized. And of course, we call them a book, but was it really a book to begin with? They're letters, right? Um, The letter is read at a church, and it is recognized as having divine authority. For all the reasons that we talked about last week of what they were looking for, that it was someone who was an apostle or who had a connection to an apostle, such as Luke. Was Luke an apostle? Did he have connection to an apostle? He did. What apostle did he have connection with? One in particular. Paul. Yeah, Paul is who he had his primary connection with. uh, Paul talks about, in his other letters, about his relationship with Luke and about how Luke is very effective to him in ministry. Um, Okay, so the books are read and they're recognized and then finally they're collected and they're confirmed and that's the process that happens over a period of years. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's look at tonight, as we begin our conversation, at a passage, so if you have your Bible... Uh, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 19. Okay, it says, remember this is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy was working at a local church and he was establishing it kind of from the ground up. And so he was helping the church get its footing. And so Paul was telling him and reminding him, these are the things that are primary for you as you establish a church. And so they remain primary to us. But let's look at what Paul said to Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, but rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, but they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." Okay, I read that for you this evening because Paul is telling Timothy, above all things, remember why it is that you're doing what you're doing and remind them of what is most significant for the church. And by doing this, here's, here's what you need to do. He says in verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And so Timothy is a worker of who? It kind of seems like he's Paul's employee here, but that's not really how it's, it's working. Uh, Paul, or Timothy was learning from Paul how to do these things. And so Paul tells him, remember that you are a worker of God and you need to be handling yourself properly, doing what God has called you to do. And the one thing that he mentions here, the one thing that he is to do above all things is what? Rightly handle the word of truth. This is primary because from the word of truth comes all of the knowledge of God. But of course we ask the question, well, what is the word of truth? And how do I know what word is the word of God? What word is the word of man? I want to know that what I have in my New Testament New Testament's where we're focusing our attention right now, right? I want to make sure that in my New Testament that what I read I can take to heart as the very word of God itself. As God's truth, as the word of truth. Has the church been unified from its beginnings about which word was the word of God and which word was the word of man? Was the church unified in this? What do you think? Rochelle says no, pretty emphatically. What do you think? No? Well, just think about it today. Is the church today, global church today, unified on what is the word of God and what is the word of man? No. They were not unified in this either from the early church, and so you might say, well, that sounds confusing to me, though, because if anybody knew which word was the word of God, you think it would be them right when it was happening. And if they didn't know, how can we know? Right? We're going to look tonight at the New Testament canon and what specifically we're going to look at are the earliest records of Christians putting together a list of what is to compose the New Testament? What is the word of God and what is not? Did anybody ever say, here's the list of authoritative, divinely inspired works? Who said that? Did Jesus say it? Jesus had died his earthly life. He was, he raised, he was raised again from the dead and then he ascended to the Father. Jesus wasn't here writing these letters and saying, that letter right there that you just got, that's, that's the word of God. Make sure that ends up in the Bible. You realize that, that that didn't happen. There was no list that fell from heaven saying these are the 27 letters and there are no more and there are no less. So then how do we know that these 27 books are the right ones? How do we know? And did they know how early can we go back and trace and say these Christians knew? We look, as we have, at the four great codices. And uh, we've talked about these before, so I'm not really going to mention much about their history. I'm just going to say um, we remember that these came. I put the years up there. Okay, so Vaticanus is from about 300, 325. That's, that's pretty good. That's, I mean, that's pretty close, isn't it? to the writing of the New Testament. I mean, we're about, you know, 250 years off or so, but we're really close. When you think about it in a grand scheme of things, is 300 pretty close to say 58 or 60 when Paul was writing the letter to the Philippians? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's very close compared to how far away we are now, right? Okay, Sinaiticus, same thing, pretty close. And then as we move, Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Rescriptus, Rescriptus, that, I mean, these are moving away a little bit, but they're still pretty close. All right, so what books did these great codices contain? Did Vaticanus, or does Vaticanus, contain the 27 books of our New Testament, no more and no less? What do you think? This is one of the four great codices, complete copies of the Bible that we have and kind of brag about in Christian history. Does Codex Vaticanus contain all 27 books of the New Testament? The answer is no. It excludes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Revelation. They're just not even there. Has the others. And also has some apocryphal works. That's a conversation for a different day, though. Sinaiticus. Does Sinaiticus include all 27 books of the New Testament? The answer is yes to that one. Except, here's the catch, it also includes two more books that we don't include. So it actually has 29 New Testament books, whereas we only have 27. Why don't we have the 29? It has the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas. Anybody ever read The Shepherd of Hermas? I read it today. It's not anything great. Alexandrinus. Alexandrinus contains all 27, but also contains two more New Testament books, but it doesn't contain The Shepherd of Hermas and The Epistle of Barnabas. It contains two different ones. First and second, Clement. But we don't have those. How about Ephraim Rescriptus, year 450? Now, that contains only the 27 books of our New Testament in the year 450. But you might think, think logically with me here, why don't we have those other books that they had? And why does the list of New Testament books seem to grow you know, and then shrink. And then they have these, but oh, they only, they only have those. And so you're looking at all these different lists of what is the New Testament in the early church. And if they didn't know, how are we supposed to know? Why, do we, why did we end up with 2,000 years later, only 27, whereas they had 29, they had 29, and then in Vaticanus, they they didn't, I mean, they had what I guess... 26, 25, 24, 23, 22. It's confusing. And if we're not careful, what it is is it's ammunition for those who do not believe in the gospel, who do not believe in Jesus Christ, the historicity of the Bible. They don't believe it, and they say, look at this. You claim this as your Bible, the very word of God. Do you know that they didn't even have those books back then or do you know that they had more books than you have in your New Testament what do you say about that why do you claim that this is the Word of God and that's not I don't really know we just that's just that's just our Bible that's that's just what we have and some that's just our answer and so if we were in a formal debate I mean they win right? Now it's not actually true, so in reality they don't win, but you understand where's our ammunition for that? If this is true, if this is real, if it's true history, if this really is the word of God, shouldn't we be able to find the history to prove that? Should we be able to say something about the formation of the canon that helps us and say, listen, God was doing something here and we can trace it throughout history. Let me show you what God was doing. Okay, and that's where we need to fall in this conversation. Let me show you. See, we need to explain to them. Do you realize that the process of forming the New Testament canon was a process? And they couldn't just email or text each other and say, hey, got a letter from Paul today, make sure and add it to your canon list. Could they do that? Or would it take time and sometimes years in order for all these letters to circulate and to say, oh, okay. Now, so they've, um, th- they've been read and circulated and then they are collected and confirmed, right? This is the collection and confirmation portion of our canon. They're taking a survey and saying, what are the books you have? And a scroll ends up on their desk and they're like, okay, the shepherd of Hermas. Well, this church thinks it's part of the scriptures. I mean, let's take a look at it and see what it is. 1 Corinthians rolls on their desk. The book of Revelation rolls up on their desk. Let's take a look at it. Who claims that they wrote it? Has the church collectively received this? Does it contradict other parts of scripture? Does this per, is this person an apostle or have a connection with an apostle? If all this is yes, then how could we reject it? So you understand how this would, it's a process. And so, we can account for there being differences in, in throughout history because of the process, right? But what I want to show you and um, I hope this is interesting to you I want to show you the, the earliest lists that we have of our New Testament canon. How far back can we go to say, this is the earliest time that we have, just look at it. Here it is. Here's a list. Um, I'll tell you the one that's normally gone to in this conversation, it's gonna be our third. Uh, We're gonna look at two more before that. Okay, so here's the first thing I wanna mention to you, the Miratorian fragment. So this thing is, uh, it's a fragment because the beginning of it is missing and it is a Latin text from about the sixth century AD, of course. And it's a copy, though, or actually a translation of a Greek text that was very early. So let me say that again, because that might be confusing. So in about in the 1700s, there was this guy. Listen to his name, Ludovicio Antonio Meritori. Okay, so this guy, great name, he made a great discovery. And what did he find? Something that he read it, and he said, "How old is this thing?" because it just listed books in the New Testament. We didn't think people had this collection yet. And so he discovered something great. So he published it in 1740. And what it was, was a Latin document, but it was a Latin document that someone had translated it from a Greek document into Latin. The Greek document that was used to translate it was a very old document. That document was from the year 170, about 170 to 200. How do we know that? Well, because in the document itself, it references who uh, a particular person, Pius, the first. And we know that he died in uh, 154. And he references him, and having recently passed. And so they date this about 170 to 200, okay? So what is in this list that's so significant? Well, it contains what is called, this is the earliest, uh, I want to say this again because I don't want to get lost here. This is the earliest list of our New Testament books, but it doesn't contain them all. But it contains a vast majority of them, which is very interesting for us. How early on were the collections being formed? Well, very early, they already had kind of a list run in here. 170, so about 100 years after the finishing of the writing of the New Testament, these things are already compiled, okay? Um, It does not contain Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and a third letter of John. So we don't know if they had 1 John and 2 John, or if they had 1 John and 3 John, they were missing 2 John, they were missing one of the the letters from John. Okay, but it also contains another book that we don't have in our Bible, which is called the Wisdom of Solomon, or the Book of Wisdom. We don't have that, but this little fragment from 170 AD says that it's part of Scripture. We're going to find that kind of a lot. Um, okay, so there are two debated books, and I have a quote here. I'm going to read it for you. I don't know if you'll be able to see it on the screen, but this is an actual quote from the Muratorian Fragment. Okay, so this is an English translation of a Latin translation from a Greek text. Take that for what it's worth. But I will say, that's what your Bible is too, right? So the Meritorian fragment, Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently in the city of Rome while Pius, his brother, was occupying the Episcopal chair of the church in the city of Rome and therefore it ought to indeed be read. But it cannot be read publicly to the people in church, either among the prophets whose number is complete or among the apostles for it is after their time. So you understand what's being said here. We have a document here called the Shepherd of Hermas. But we understand it's not part of Scripture, but it should be read because we know the guy that wrote it and it seems reputable, but he's not to be named among the apostles of the prophets. It's not Scripture, but it's profitable to be read and you should read it. That's what this is saying about a hundred years after the writing of the New Testament. That's what this is saying, okay? But notice what's happening already. Are they very interested in knowing what is the word of God and what should be read in church and what should not be read in church? In 170 AD, they were already saying, listen, understand we have rules. This letter, it's not scripture, but it's beneficial for you to read it, but just understand it's not scripture, They were already doing this. They had collected all these works and they were saying scripture, not scripture, profitable, heretical, and they were making categories of these different letters and works and things like that. Now, the shepherd of Hermas, he's saying, it's profitable, read it. You know what? When I was doing some research here, the shepherd of Hermas comes up a lot. A lot. People saying how it's beneficial Some people saying throughout church history, yes, it is scripture. I was very interested. I I had never read even a portion of it, and so I read the whole thing today. Um, It's long. It's it's much longer than I thought it was going to be. It it took quite some time to read it. Um, But I wanted to know, these guys are talking so highly of this thing. What is contained in this old document that they thought profitable for the church and and some even said this should be part of your canon. Uh, I have a quote for you here, and it's very short. And to me, it kind of, oh, did I not put it on the screen? Never mind. Let me read it for you. It's, it's short. This is from the Shepherd of Hermas, Okay. But now I say to you, If you do not keep them, but neglect them, you will not have salvation, nor will your children or your family, since you decided for yourself that these commandments cannot be kept. Tell me, just in that one statement, does that sound like part of our New Testament? If you don't keep these commandments, you don't have salvation, your children don't have salvation, none of your family has salvation, because you have decided not to keep these commandments. Does that sound like the New Testament? No, and so do you see why there are things here that over time, p- some people are like, yeah, I, I think it's beneficial, and other people say no. No, that doesn't, that, it contradicts other parts of Scripture. It's not Scripture, but I'm showing you this to say there is a debate early on as far as what should be included in our New Testament and what should not be included in our New Testament. And yet again, just like all our translations that we have, we're standing on the work of so many thousands of years, hundreds of years, and hundreds of people. We're standing on their work here from the early stages of Christianity, saying they did this work, but as they did it, who was really doing it? As the church was determining what books should be part of Scripture and what should not, who was doing the work? As people were writing Scripture, they were writing Scripture, but who was writing Scripture? Right, so you see it's the same process. The process of forming the canon of Scripture is the same as the process of writing Scripture. That God uses secondary agency. And instead of using a single individual to write a single letter, he uses the collection of the church to select and to understand which letters should be Scripture and which are not. Okay, so that being said, I'll go back to our very first question of which of these statements is correct, an authoritative list of books or a list of authoritative books. It's a list of authoritative books because it wasn't the people saying, we choose these. It was saying, let's consider the whole council of God. Let's consider who wrote it. Is God speaking to us through this, through this person? And the church determined yes. Uh, in this meritorian fragment, um, there were some books that they mention as books to be rejected. <coughs> There was an epistle to the Laodiceans that came across their desk. They said, this is to be rejected. We do not accept the letter, the epistle to the Laodiceans. The epistle to the Alexandrians, and it says in this, le- in this work here, it says both of these letters are forged in Paul's name to spread the teachings of Marcion. And so that's what was happening in the early church era is that people were writing stuff saying, signed Paul. Trying to corrupt the church. So the church had to beware and say, what is scripture, what is not? What a hard job. And today, like I said, I hope that this this has helped you to find this as It's a miracle that we have our New Testament and our Old Testament. It's a miracle. And it's so simple and accessible to us. We just take the book off our shelf and just open to whatever. We take it all as the word of God. So simple for us. But this is not how it's been for a majority of human history. Okay, uh, there was also a new book of Psalms written and they said we don't like that either. Okay, okay. Uh, there was also a complete rejection of some particular teachings. And so in this, they were still in the Meritorian fragment. There's a lot in here, right? That's why this little fragment is so important. And they say, okay, there's three guys that are teaching stuff right now, and their letters are kind of circulating just like our New Testament letters. Um, But you need to beware. And if anything comes to you from Marcion, from Valentinus, or Basilides, reject them completely because they're all heretics. Marcion is, uh, there's something called Marcionism, and uh, it's interesting because it's, you've heard of Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism, it refers to the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge, that there is a hidden secret knowledge that you have to obtain, um, and if you obtain it, you clearly are God's chosen person. Um, this was going around in the early church and they wrote letters just like our New Testament letters and they would send them out to places just like our New Testament was. And they, what if we were a small church and a letter came in and you said, hey, this looks pretty good. I kind of like what it has to say. And we start reading it in the church and that doctrine begins corrupting our church. There's so much messy stuff here that they had to be so concerned with We have to be equally concerned with that today, of course. But this was the formation of our New Testament. Okay, Marcionism and this Gnosticism stuff, um, they believed that there were two different gods, that there was an Old Testament God and there was a New Testament God. The Old Testament God was the God of creation. The New Testament God was the God of love. Jesus came to undo the horrible works of this creation God who was so mean. So Marcion said, Paul got it. Paul understood. In fact, Paul was the only true apostle of Jesus. All the 12, they didn't know what they were saying. So Marcion said, the only scripture I have are the letters of Paul. And even those were edited. Of course they had to be. Anyway. That's the meritorian fragment. There's another one here, the homilies, homilies on Joshua. And this is written by Origen. Origen. Origen here lists 26 of the 27 books of our New Testament canon. This is pretty unbelievable. What year is this? A.D. 250. Less than 200 years after the close of our New Testament, we have a completed list. Now, he doesn't list Revelation, but in other places, he does talk about Revelation as being the word of God. But it's interesting because he writes it in his homilies on Joshua. It's basically a commentary on the book of Joshua. And I just, I have it here. I just, I, I'll read it because it's, it's pretty interesting how he does it. It says, But when our Lord Jesus Christ comes, whose arrival, that prior of the Son of Nun designated, he sends priests, his apostles, bearing trumpets hammered thin, he's using imagery from Joshua to talk about Jesus, is what he's doing here. The magnificent and heavenly instruction and proclamation. Matthew sounded first the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also Luke and John each played their own priestly trumpets. They're even in order. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Even Peter cries out with the trumpets in 2 of his epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter. Also James and Jude. In addition, John also sounds the trumpet through his epistles, that is 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. As Luke As he writes in Acts, there's a book of Acts. And now the last one comes who said, the last one comes who said, I think God displays us apostles last. He doesn't even mention his name. Who is that? Paul, in 14 of his uh, his epistles. How many epistles of Paul do we have in our New Testament? Anybody have the answer? The answer is 13, but he lists 14. Anybody have an idea why? This one you can get. Why does he list 14 instead of 13? Hebrews, that's right. They attributed Hebrews to Paul early on. And in P46, collection of Paul's writings, guess what's in there? Hebrews. Modern scholarship kind of denies that. What, you know? But if we don't know who wrote Hebrews, how can we have a basis for its determination on whether or not it should be part of our canon? Because remember, it had to either be an apostle or someone with a connection to an apostle. If we don't know who wrote it. That's why we say the author of Hebrews. A lot of people think Hebrews was a sermon of Paul's, that someone else transcribed, like Luke. Anyway, that was just extra stuff. Next one. Last one. What are we looking at, by the way? The earliest accounts, the earliest written parts, or or the earliest written lists of our New Testament books. How far back can we go and say these are our New Testament books? Okay, this is the one... Uh, This next one, the 39th Festal Letter by Athanasius. This is the one that, if you were to Google search the earliest New Testament list, this is the answer that's going to come up. The 39th Festal Letter. It contains all 27 books. And it's the first time we've had something contain all 27. And so by that regard, it is true. In the year 367, Athanasius wrote a letter. And in this letter... All 27 books of our New Testament are listed, no more, no less. And uh, uh, I'll give you a couple of quotes here because I want to end with some application for us. And I think this has it, it's pretty good. So I'm going to read from uh, the 39th Festal Letter. By the way, a Festal Letter, we don't write Festal Letters anymore. Um, A festal letter was something that the bishop of Alexandria would write once a year, letting all the churches know the date of Easter. And so this was the 39th festal letter. But in this letter, he reminds the churches what the word of God is and what it is not. And so that's why it's good. It contains some good information. He says, Again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. I would agree with that. There are four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles. Seven, James 1, Peter 2, John 3, and after these, Jude. In addition, there are 14 Epistles of Paul, written in order. The first to the Romans, then to to the Corinthians, the Galatians, next Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and after these, the two Thessalonians and... To the Hebrews. And again, two of Timothy, one of Titus, and lastly, Philemon. And besides, the Revelation of John. And there he just listed all 27 New Testament books. In what year? The year 367. These are the. Listen, so here's where this gets pretty interesting. Listen to what he says These are the fountains of salvation. They who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take aught from these, or take away from these. For concerning these the Lord put to shame the Sadducees, saying, "You err, not knowing the Scriptures." Do you see what he's saying here? He is saying, this is the word of God. There is no more, there is no less. You should not add to it. You should not take away from it. This is what it is. It is final, it is complete. And if someone adds to it or takes away from it, it's just like Jesus going to the Sadducees and saying, you don't even know the scriptures. Because he's saying, if you do add or take away, you're not knowing the scriptures. But it is these alone. These are the scriptures. He says, But for greater exactness, I add this also, writing of necessity, that there are other books, these not indeed included in the canon. He just used the word canon. But appointed by the fathers to be read by those who are newly joined to us and wish for instruction the word of godliness. So what he's saying is, we have the canon and it's fixed. 27 books. But I think I'll say this too. There are other works that are not canon that are helpful for us to read. Those books are The Wisdom of Solomon, The Wisdom of Sirach, Esther. Esther is one of those books that for a long time was not considered part of the Old Testament canon. Judith and Tobit. And then, those are Old Testament. And then these two New Testament: the teaching of the apostles, also called the Didache, and the Shepherd of Hermas. There's the Shepherd of Hermas again. It just keeps coming up every, everywhere. The former, my brethren, are included in the canon; that is, the 2070 listed. The later being merely read. But there should not be any mention of a place for the apocryphal, apocryphal writings. They are inventions of heretics who write them when they choose, bestowing on them their approbation, assigning to them a date, that so using them as ancient writings, they may find association to lead astray the simple. So what he's saying is, here are the collection of authoritative works, 27 in number, here are a couple that are good to read, but they're not scripture, and then here's a whole nother set that are heretical, that you don't even need to read those, They are written intentionally to lead people astray. So when you read on the newspaper or you see uh, some kind of news article or a History Channel documentary on the lost gospel of Thomas, Christians will be blown away. We just found a new gospel. Add it to your Bible. What do we say of these things? people are gonna continue to find, write these things, and but why were they writing these other gospels and things? It was to push forward their own beliefs, like Marcion, right, his teachings, or other Gnostic things. There was a lot of different sects of Gnosticism going on by different names. And um, also, they just intentionally wanted to lead people astray. Wouldn't that be a great way to make this whole thing just kind of dissimulate. Let's introduce some teachings here. Let's just write a letter that makes it look just like Paul's stuff and insert it and we can, we can make, we can destroy this thing. And that's what they tried to do. And so we should not be surprised when someone says, oh, but what about this letter over here? Oh, what about this letter? They found this over at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Yeah, they just dug it up. Just dug it up. It's fresh. This thing is from the year 200. And if it's that old, your church must have believed it to be scripture. Is that true? Or by the year 200, were they already very intimately involved in saying scripture, not scripture? Absolutely, they had to be. And so do you see, just by these three things tonight, the process that it it took, the work that it took, and the time that it took for all these things to circulate and then for the church to get together and say all right everything's in circulation it's been a while since the apostles were around we have everything that's been associated with them let's collect all these things and let's make categories here and say we know that that's heresy we know that there's only one letter of this thing and the other churches don't even know about it that's that can't that's not scripture And so they used these things we talked about last week to make a determination of what is Scripture, what is not. But what they were doing is saying, what is the word God has delivered to us? Let's try and make sure we know. And these other things we're going to get rid of, except for these, which seem to be helpful to us, but they're still not Scripture. Okay? That was a lot, huh? Any questions about that? Origin. Origen is a, a theologian, just a very, very, he's called one of the church fathers. There is a, uh, Athanasius, Origen, I mean, Tertullian. There's a lot of these guys who are, um, uh, it's the era of the church fathers, meaning that they wrote a lot of theology to connect dots for the church, and they also had status in the church. And so Origen is one of these guys who had status in the church, and he wrote a lot. And throughout church history, a lot of people, even the Middle Ages and now, go back and reference Origen and say, this is how Origen understood it. But nobody's doctrine is perfect. And so you'll go back and read them. So that's why we can't, that's a good question, but that's why we can't just say, well, let's just go back and read all of Origen's stuff and believe what he believed, I mean, he was closer to the time of Jesus. He probably believed perfectly. Did Peter believe perfectly? Or did he have to be corrected often by Jesus? Yeah, I mean, that you could be right next to Jesus and not get it. And so it doesn't matter. We use all of Christian history to help us. Right? So, When you hear people using language that has not been used throughout church history to define certain theological concepts, you say, the church has never talked that way. Why are you using that kind of language? The church has never understood it that way. The church, meaning God's church, God's people, right? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yep, yep, no. And, uh, those and um first and second Maccabees are gonna be considered Jewish historical material during um, that period of time when they're between 400 and 400 BC and um, the time when Jesus came. There was that 400 years of silence, but the Jewish people continued to exist, right? And it's kind of it, it was written in that era, and um, that's why we can say, well, God wasn't really talking to people right then. Um, but they claim something that it's not. But the Jews said, yeah, but it's part of our history. Just like with Maccabees, it's it's recording part of their history, and so they like these works because it speaks to their history. But it still didn't mean that they included them as scripture. They they were helpful to them as a people, as a heritage. Uh, right? Yeah, does that make sense? And so they kept them close to themselves as if we were to keep something like the Pilgrim's Progress. If you grew up with that or something, you're like, oh, I love it. It's, it's, but it's not scripture, but I keep it next to my Bible because, oh, I just love it. That's the idea. Yeah. Amy, go ahead. Um, was there a time where the Apocrypha, like, this was a bishop that wrote this letter? Mm mm-hmm. Well, it depends on if you're talking about the New Testament Apocrypha or the Old Testament Apocrypha because there's both. The New Testament Apocrypha. The Old Testament Apocrypha, he would have included several works from the Apocrypha of the Old Testament in Scripture. And it wasn't until a little bit later on that um, they started to... sects of, of... theology began to understand certain things this way certain things this way and they were saying listen the more we compare because think about it if you just have individual letters how can you compare them if you don't have them all so now that we have a collection and people are doing full biblical studies throughout all the books they're able to compare and contrast concepts that they never could before so now people are recognizing hey what I'm reading here." is not jiving with the rest of the Old Testament or with what Jesus says as he clarifies the Old Testament, right? And so, as there's more biblical theology being done, people are starting to recognize, hey, I know these guys accepted it, but we're not accepting it and here's why. And they're building on their studies of what scripture is actually saying. So, a process. Just like our New Testament process of gathering um, just because at one time the list is bigger doesn't really mean much. But also, remember that early church sometimes was removed from Jewish communities, which as we talked about, because it's, it's hard because you're taking information I gave you thinking that Origen or Athanasius had this information, but they didn't we know that the Jewish community didn't accept the Apocrypha as Scripture. So then why did they? They didn't know. They found all those works together with, with the Tanakh and the Apocrypha. And they, oh, they must all be Scripture. And so they took them and they came to understand over time, oh, this is what's going on. Is that, I don't, is that helpful? Yeah, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, the Gnostics. Yeah, the Gnostics. Um, uh, were, so if that, they were probably narcissists as well. <laughs> but yeah, they. Uh, it, it's it's very similar, except what they did was they actually took a a belief that was totally separate from Christianity, completely its own thing that was already in existence, right? for a long time, in the Greek world. And what they did is they took that and they put Christianity in it. And it morphed into this new thing. That's what they did. So it was not necessarily just a misunderstanding of scripture, but it was actually taking two different things and trying to blend them together. That's what they were doing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah he didn't come for about 2,000 years later yeah uh-huh yeah Jim was making a joke okay <laughs> I got it I thought it was funny yeah go ahead um, so like I'm like trying to picture like you were saying some people wrote letters to Leia you know, things. yes Yeah, right. So, like, even, gonna- yeah, even those works. Yeah. See, you made an assumption that the letter to the Laodiceans was intentionally leading them astray. Oh, um, but all that was said here is that they don't, re- they don't accept it as scripture. So it could have been written by someone who was a pastor of a church. Uh, other letters would have been signed by Paul or, or, oh yeah, that one in particular, yes, was, you're correct. You're correct. Sorry. Yes. That one in particular was signed as Paul, right? Someone was trying to deceive them. That's right. Sorry about that. But other letters, you're asking a more general question. Other letters that were just written, how to, but what if they were and all this kind of stuff, if it didn't have, if it didn't meet this criteria, are they an apostle or connected to an apostle? then it might be helpful material, but in no way are we going to accept that as scripture. So just because the church rejected something doesn't mean that it was heresy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm trying to picture like, if I were, you know, I'm trying to pretend like if I was, you know, like... <laughs>
1: Yeah. Like I would love to know like mm-hmm. how do you know, some know that it's God, that some think
0: mm-hmm. that it's God. Mm-hmm. Maybe some don't even know it's God because they're right. humble and it is God. Yes. Like I just wonder like what well, I could yep. see that a miraculous process. Yeah. That's why it's so hard for us to grasp it truly is a miraculous process. Yeah. And we can we're we're okay with that, right? Because okay. God does miraculous cool. things. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Oh man, is it going to make it in the Bible? Um, Yeah. Oh, so close. Yeah. Uh, But uh, I think probably more genuinely, if a person was was being used by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to a church, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about the church. All their thoughts are about the church. I want to care for the church. I'm not thinking about, is this going to you know, make it on I'm concerned for that church. Or Paul was concerned for a whole region, Galatia. Right? He was concerned for a whole region. And so he wanted his letter to be circulated, but not in the sense that we have it now. This was not on his mind. Right, he even yeah, exactly. But later on, they'll get the printing press and we'll be good to go. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it does. Just like, that, that's a good point, because if you've ever read any of the Book of Mormon, you're going to notice that it has, if I were to pull one verse out of the Book of Mormon and say, is this in your Bible? You might be tempted to say, yeah, it sounds an awful lot like scripture. But is it scripture? man, I mean, we have such accessibility today to the Word of God, and luckily we can go and we can reference these things. And, and, but how, how did they do that? How did they do that in the early church? Uh, but yes, that's, that's correct. And that really was my point of saying I want to make some application here is that we need to be familiar with these things. And one of the biggest mission fields of the Mormon church is hmm Mm-hmm. Yep, right. Yeah, We're trying to make that not be the case here, right? I mean, that's, that's a big goal here is that we do not want to be ignorant of the scriptures and uh, I want to be one approved by God, a worker of God, um, rightly handling the word of truth. And I think this is part of it is that we need to know where the word came from. Is this the word? Can we be sure that this is the word? And hopefully we're starting to gather the process that our Bible has gone through over time. Um, There are so many things that we are leaving out. And so... Uh, If in processing this kind of stuff you end up having questions because something didn't click, there's a line here, well, you didn't tie that dot together, please tell me. Um, And uh, I will do what I can to answer that. Uh, If I can't answer it on the spot, I'll do what I can to make sure we have that answer. Yes, okay, yes, last question, Sherry. Um, (laughs) You You only get three. No. Yeah, because our God is not a God who does so much work to author something, and then He says, "Okay, oh man, I hope Paul gets that thing done today." And then, but and then He goes and He, he get, delivers it over here, and, and God's watching the whole time. And He went, "Oh, He dropped it. It's in the water. What are we going to do?" I mean, there it goes. You know what? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, our, our God is so, and maybe that's what we need to see this whole process, is that God is so intricately involved that he is not leaving his church without his word. And God is sovereign. God works in, in miraculous providential ways in our lives and throughout the church that God's not making mistakes, And he's not wasting anything. That's a big thing we need to understand about God. God's not wasting things. But all things are working according to the counsel of his will. All things. God's not wasting stuff, including writing a letter and it getting lost. Right? That's why I can say no. Okay. Okay? All right. Well, that's good. Good conversation tonight. Remember, please, bring questions. I was going to show you something here if I ran out of time, but you know what? That wasn't an issue, was it? Okay. I'll show you another time. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for our time together tonight and a great reminder tonight, I believe, just in how we need to be, as the early church was, conscious and aware of what is the Word of God and what is not. And sometimes your Word surprises us because... Uh, We think that might not be scripture, but oh, it is, or vice versa, but I I hope that you would help us, Lord, in this process, and uh, give us assurance of your word, help us to see your hand involved in all of these things, help us to trust that you know what you're doing, and uh, we pray that you would uh, be glorified in our time. I pray that you would strengthen our faith through this. There are many in our world who want to use this information to destroy our faith, but we see it as something that strengthens our faith, and I pray that you would help us in that. Help everyone who's not here tonight. Uh, There's a lot of sickness. I do pray that you would bring healing uh, to them, and I pray that you would strengthen our church continually. In Jesus' name, amen.